Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james i am obsessed with not losing any of my brain ability as i get older and i'm also really nervous about dementia and alzheimer's my grandmother had alzheimer's in fact, I would like my brain to be smarter as I get older, if such a thing's possible. So I had on neuroscientist, Dr. Mark Milstein, who just wrote a book, The Age-Proof Brain, New Strategies to Improve Memory, Protect Immunity, and Fight Off Dementia. It's a great book, great conversation. Here we go. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. In the book, The Age-Proof Brain, you offer solutions to maybe avoid dementia. I didn't know you could avoid things or postpone things like Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, so that's what we're, we're seeing is that it's not destiny in, in a vast majority of cases and that we have things that we can do. I like to say in the book, little things, because nobody wants to make major changes. So how do we do little things that can protect our brain and really also get the best out of it each day? Um, and so we do see that we can lower risk of dementia anywhere from 30 to 60%. I know that's a big range, but that's where the studies are showing us. Um, and it's about some lifestyle factors. And I didn't know this either, that dementia is what Alzheimer's causes and other things cause dementia too. But that's like sort of the, the end goal of Alzheimer's is dementia. I thought maybe it was like, oh, everybody gets a little bit of dementia, but some people get it really serious with Alzheimer's. So I, I really didn't know too well all the lingo there. Yeah, it's a common misconception. And part of it is because for years, the terms were used interchangeably. So it was just 
used in the same manner, but now we really separate them and say that dementia is symptoms, the symptoms of memory loss, which, as you said, can be caused by many, many different things. Uh, it could be, you know, injuries. It could be other conditions. Alzheimer's is one specific condition that causes the symptoms of memory loss. Um, so it's a very specific pathology or things that are happening in the brain that cause that memory loss. It's the most common cause of dementia. So it's, you know, critically important we talk about it. Yeah, and so, so far, it seems they don't really know for sure what causes Alzheimer's. Like you mentioned in, in the book, for instance, the plaque that builds up in the neurons, but you also yeah. mentioned uh, tangles that build up inside the brain cells. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that there were, I always thought it was the plaque stuff, but recent studies have shown that drugs that cure the plaque stuff don't really work on Alzheimer's as well as people thought they would. Yeah, so it's, it's what we're seeing is happening is it's multiple factors. I like to say it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's a mix of this waste, plaques, tangles. Uh, it's also metabolism. So the, the brain's not using sugar like it used to. It's inflammation um, so that the immune system is attacking the brain. And we believe it's it's just this basically compounding effects and they build up over time. And so just dealing with the plaques or the tangles is probably not enough. It might show some benefits. There's some uh, trials going on right now where we're seeing some help, but where we saw a lot of benefit in cancer treatments is when it was a cocktail of medications that went after multiple underlying issues. And the evidence is suggesting it's going to be the same thing with Alzheimer's. You also mentioned like there are people who have a ton of plaque, a ton of tangles, they're over the age yeah. of 100 and they're doing crossword puzzles every day and and skiing or right. whatever. And so so they don't even, so they have all this evidence that they should have Alzheimer's or dementia, but they don't. So that also indicates there's things we right. don't understand or know about ultimately what's causing dementia. Yeah, so Alzheimer's induced a dementia um, specifically, it's not just the plaques. And that is why we believe those medications alone are not as successful as we thought they would have been. And that it's inflammation, the immune system attacking the brain. It's the loss of the ability to use sugar um, and also some other factors that we just don't know. So it is, it's not just one thing. And although that seems more complex, it actually gives us hope because it's, it means that there are multiple avenues that we can pursue to lessen the risk and develop better therapeutics and treatments. So, so I guess... A, I want to hear about what some of those lifestyle changes are. And, and you know, one thing I was thinking yeah. is you have this one story of a nun who's 102 years old, who's solving crossword puzzles every right. day. She's, she's smart. She's quick-witted. And then when she dies, she, she's the example you used to show. She had a lot of plaque and a lot of tangles, all the things that would indicate in the brain she should have dementia, but she didn't. I'm wondering if she had such a simple lifestyle, like basically her whole lifestyle was regimented for her, being a nun, and it's a very, I and mean, I'm sure in her older ages, she she wasn't, didn't have as many responsibilities. I bet when you have like a zero stress life, that probably helps. <laughs> well, that it's interesting you mentioned that because what we see is that it's actually some amount of stress is actually quite good for the brain. If we look at, it, it, we kind of think of the brain like a car. Like if you don't drive it and you leave it in the garage, it falls apart. And if you overdrive it, it falls apart. So we actually see that some amount of stress actually helps memory, helps let the brain know that this the brain needs to keep functioning and keeps needs to keep working. It's it's that cortisol, that stress hormone in a burst, it's like primes the brain cells, helps them, keeps them healthy, keeps them youthful. But if it's too much too often, 
if it's never ending or we can't take a break from it or it's overwhelming, that's when we see damage to, to brain cells and damage to memory. So we're actually thinking about stress in a bit of a different way, which is we want some, we want engagement, we want things we want to get done. We just don't want it to be overwhelming or too much too often. So I'm curious about all these things, like what one can do for, and you mentioned a lot of lifestyle habit changes that yeah. are fairly easy to do that could that could reduce or eliminate or at least help with dementia, Alzheimer's stuff. But I'm also curious about age-related decline, as as I mentioned before, as related to someone like me, someone you know over the age of 50 who in a very visceral way, it's not like I'm, I have dementia or senility or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not you know, I don't have that, but I could see the difference between myself and myself in my 20s. And I'm sure a lot of people experience that when they're in their 50s. Yeah, so starting at the age of 40, actually, the brain starts to shrink uh, about 5% about every 10 years. And so that shrinking can have an impact on memory, focus, productivity, day-to-day -day ability to um, just sort of get things done at the same rate or productivity level as previously. But as you mentioned, we see that there are things that we can do not only to slow that down, um, but also be aware that we want to say that there's certain things that are going to decline, you know, maybe the speed of calculations, for example, but we can increase our ability to uh, have wisdom or perspective. So there is a balance there. But in, in overall, what we see is that we can take care of the brain. Um, there are going to be some skills that, you know, might get uh, not as robust, not as strong, but we can do things to keep our brain working better, longer. And also, on the other hand, there's evidence that when people do the things where I think we're going to talk about, that, you know, even people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, when they optimize their sleep, manage their stress, think about the things they're eating, that their ability of their processing speed of their brain does go up. Their ability to run their day goes up. Their ability to score on tests goes up. So we do have evidence that these interventions um, can be powerful. At the same time, you know, as we get older, we do have to be aware that things can slow down. And if it's happening here or there, that can be normal. But if it's happening at an increased rate or increased frequency or we're seeing major changes, we actually want to get the message out that we don't want to say that that's just a normal part of aging because we see that there are things we can do to slow it down. So we want to be on top of it and not just say, oh, that's you know just part of the aging process. Because as we get into our 60s, what we're seeing is something that's much more common than we thought called mild cognitive impairment, which is people starting to not have dementia, where it's, it's the inability to you know, get through the day based upon memory issues. But there's some significant memory issues. And in the past, people said, oh, that's just the aging process. Well, now we know that that shouldn't be happening. So we want to make some distinctions about if things are getting significantly worse, we're noting any, any changes, we want to get on top of it because we see that we can make improvements. But it sounds like it is in part the aging process. Like you said, the brain gets smaller, which I want to ask you about. So you so you have to do these lifestyle changes. Like yeah. in your 20s, you don't have to do the lifestyle changes. Maybe you're not living optimally for your brain, but you could kind of have a laissez-faire attitude towards your brain health because you're still going to, your brain's still large. And then when you're older, you kind of have to do these things. Like one of the first things I did after reading your book was go immediately to the dentist and you know, check on gingivitis <laughs> and things like yeah. that. Cause that's like this chronic right, right, inflammation. Right, right. And you mentioned how inflammation yeah. affects the brain. And I had some, right. so I had to do like a cleaning and antibiotics and, and hopefully that will, will help. But what you're saying is basically that even if one is experiencing some decline, we don't really know what their potential is until they start, you know, adjusting to these lifestyle changes. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, you know, I'm just, I'm, 
I'm glad that you made that that step, taking the information and making the action step. That's that's great um, because yeah, exactly what you're saying is that that inflammation that seems so minor or so insignificant can spread to the brain and and cause an inflammation or the immune system attacking the brain. And also, what you're saying is is true. You know, when we're in our you know teens or twenties. Getting a good night's sleep is good. It's it's beneficial, and we see people perform better, you know, in athletics if they get a good night's sleep. But there's more of a leeway. There's more of a buffer. Um, and then as we get older, there's less of a buffer. And I think that's not. We don't need scientific studies to show us that. We just feel that as we get older, that you know what used to be uh, something you could get away with is harder to get away with as you get older. Yeah. So uh, you know, so so a lot of people listening to this, they might not be in their seventies or eighties, but they might be caring for someone who is, or they also might be younger and they like to keep optimal brain health, or they might be like me, like somewhere in the middle. And, exp- you know, why, why does the brain shrink, first of all? Like, what, what is shrinking? Is it one part of the brain or is it the entire brain? Uh, essentially, overall, part of it is that as we get older, this waste that builds up in the brain becomes harder to get rid of. And there's several reasons for that. Um, the older that we get, are we're not sleeping as well as we used to. And so when we sleep at night, we're actually squeezing trash and waste out of the brain and essentially washing it away through something we call basically the brainwash process. So when that trash builds up, it can damage brain cells and cause them to shrink. That's one thing that can be happening. Also, as we get older, part of our aging process is that our immune system doesn't work as well. And so we're not as good often as fighting off viruses or having our immune system understand when it's time to take a break that you know, don't attack the joints, don't attack the heart, don't attack the gut, don't attack the, the brain. And so by the immune system essentially thinking of it like an army attacking the brain, that can shrink the brain as well. So the hopeful side of all this is that we see that the lifestyle factors that we're, we're talking about here, optimizing your sleep, thinking about inflammation, um, thinking about your dental health, these things can keep um, basically aspects of your brain healthier by by alleviating or minimizing those those factors that can do the damage. And and you know I wonder like let's say sleep that's something that you could you know treat medically like I could take a sleeping pill for instance or melatonin and does is it is it cheating does it not work if I use artificial means to sleep? Well we see that natural sleep is 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 best. Um so Things to think about are that the over-the-counter sleep aids, for example, you know, or the people say they'll take an allergy pill, for example, that has the side effect that can make you feel drowsy. That's an area where you know you can feel like, oh, I'm I'm doing something helpful for my brain because I'm going to be getting more sleep. But we realize that it's not just it's not just the number of hours of sleep that you're getting; it's how effective and the quality of that sleep. And so, if we go back to that idea of that washing process. For example, with the -the over-the-counter sleep aids, we see that people who use those long-term, on average, develop memory issues earlier. And we believe part of what's happening, there's two main things that are happening there. One is that we believe that these over-the-counter sleep aids or these drowsy-inducing medications like allergy pills that people often use to fall asleep, they don't allow the brain to go through that washing process. So there's too much of this waste left over. And if you just think of your brain like a house or an apartment, there's too much trash or garbage around, it's hard to find things, hard to focus, hard to be productive. So... We want to make sure that each night we're getting that brainwashing, brain cleansing sleep. And the other thing is that we realize that if if we're turning to these things, these these solutions, for example, the -the over-the-counter sleep aids, they have something in them called anticholinogenic. They're 
they minimize a compound in the brain that's just critical for memory. So the science is very sound that we see that these solutions are not things we want to turn to. And instead, we've learned so much about how the brain works that we want to turn to those things in, in terms of you know, optimizing our sleep. And we can talk about some of those things if you'd like. Like how, how do you get the good night's sleep without turning to the, to the sleeping aid? Yeah, no, that, that is interesting. I've done, so Arianna Huffington a long time ago wrote a book about sleep and how she suffered from lack of sleep and then really did some research on this and wrote a book about it. And I had her on the podcast to talk about it, but that was a long time ago. Like what are one or two suggestions? And I, I admit that sometimes using AIDS to, to sleep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's when, when we hear about how important sleep is, it's so easy to turn to things that we think are helping, but, but they're not helpful. So instead, um, one of the most powerful tips is not anything you're doing while you're sleeping or before bed, but it's in the morning. And there's this discovery that won the Nobel Prize, essentially that there's a brain clock in your head. There's like a little tiny clump of brain cells that's kind of like a countdown timer that helps you fall asleep at night and helps you essentially get a better night's sleep. And you start the countdown in the morning by getting outside in the presence of natural light. The study suggests about 10 minutes within about a half hour of getting up. And this brain clock essentially starts the countdown in the morning that's going to help you fall asleep at night. So it sounds really simple, but a lot of us either work from home or we jump in a car or, or a public transportation, we go to work, we go to an office. We're just missing out on morning light and something so small, so something that seems like so silly, but it's in our modern world, we can overlook it. And so just, you know, when you wake up in the morning, take a walk, walk the dog, check the mail, go to the front yard, the backyard, a balcony, let your brain get that morning light. That's really powerful. It's become a new field called chronobiology. We realize this brain clock regulates sleep, mood, metabolism. You know, our brain is tuned to the light and dark cycles, and sometimes we can easily overlook that. So I would say that something very powerful is try a little bit more morning light um, as something that can help you sleep that night. And is it true that you have to sleep eight straight hours? Like, can I sleep four hours, get up for a while, and then sleep four hours? <laughs> or does it have to be like, does the washing occur if, you're, if it's, the sleep's continuous? Yeah, so the washing, and that's another thing is I hope that nobody hears this podcast and says they're going to wake up at two in the morning and they say, I know I'm not getting my brainwash. I'm more stressed than ever. <laughs> I wish I didn't hear about this. So just to, just to reiterate or to highlight some key points is that you sleep in about a 90-minute cycle, and within that 90 minutes, you have a brainwash. And then at the end of the 90-minute cycle, you're dreaming, and you're basically paralyzed from the neck down so you don't act out your dreams. And at the end of the 90 minutes, you actually wake up and you actually move a little. It's actually normal. So really an important message for people is it's okay to wake up throughout the night. You actually wake up every 90 minutes, about every 90 minutes. You're not conscious of all those awakenings, but it's okay to wake up. It's normal. It's part of the process. We're really not meant to just get in bed and stay asleep. Uh, some people are not aware of the wake up, so they feel like they're sleeping you know, a certain number of hours straight, but you actually do wake up um, it's okay to wake up. If you wake up tonight, remind yourself, you just had a brainwash in that, in that, uh, in that cycle. We just want to have several of these washes throughout the night to, to optimize that cleaning process. Um, but by no means do you have to have this feeling like I'm laying in bed, I go to sleep, and I just wake up a certain number of hours later, and there was no disruption throughout the night. And you also mentioned the role of like anxiety and depression on future dementia. Like why... Yeah. why like anxiety is kind of a, and you all, and I think related to this is you mentioned how this generation we're seeing more instances of dementia than ever. And I was, my initial instinct was is that because people are living longer uh, in general, but you know, I don't, I don't think that's it. I think maybe we're more stressed in our daily lives. 
Yeah, so part of it is that we're living longer. That's a piece of the puzzle. Um, but it's also the, the factors of all these underlying conditions. Um, there's some environmental factors that we believe are happening, toxins in our environment, and also things that you know we're still learning about. But when we talk about anxiety and depression, what we do see, and this actually just came out this year, this study, they found that if anxiety and depression are not treated, if they're not managed, if they're not treated effectively, they increase the risk of dementia years down the road. So individuals who have unmanaged anxiety or depression, if you look, if you follow them, what you see happens is that on average, they lose their memory about five years earlier than individuals that don't have those conditions. And so what we believe is happening is that those, those conditions, anxiety, depression, they can have an inflammatory component too. Um, in some cases, those individuals are not sleeping as well. Um, and they're impacting some of the lifestyle factors that we're talking about as well. So really the message is, is that our mental health today is impacting our long-term brain health down the road. But you know, the hopeful side of this is that the things that we're talking about, optimizing sleep, thinking about things that we're eating, all these intervention, little lifestyle things, they're important for mental health today and they're important for brain health down the road. So it's not like we have to do a whole new set of things. Um, they can be beneficial for both. Yeah, and you have a, you have a list of foods in one chapter towards the end uh, that are good for the for the brain. So I'll let people just you know find that in in the book. One question I have about like certain vitamins. You mentioned vitamin D. Is you know yeah. I've talked to different scientists about vitamin D and vitamin C, and some people just don't believe that they work at all. Some people think that it, it doesn't get absorbed into the body correctly. Like, is there uh, you know? And then and then there's uh, companies that you know, will come over your house and intravenously with an IV, give you all the vitamins you need. And so what's the best way to take like vitamin D for instance, other than I get it sunlight, but in terms of supplements and food? Yeah, you really, we can take supplements and put them all in the same category, which is lots of conflicting data. Um, and so really when we see things that are this conflicting, we basically break it down this way, that people once or twice a year, just like you went out and went to the dentist, that was a really great step, is once or twice a year, go to the doctor and just get a blood test and test for these things, the things that supplements would be um, dealing with. And if anything is deficient, first try to deal with it with food, because we see that, as you said, the food absorbs better than these supplements. We, we see that clearly. If food is not alleviating the issue, then supplements can be used, but we want to use them in a way that somebody's coming back, you know, a year, six months or a year later, because vitamin D is the perfect example of something where it's in the news and people, it, it, the message seems to be that everybody needs more vitamin D. Well, if you need it, if you're not getting enough, that's true. But if you're taking too much of it, that can also cause issues with memory and cause issues really? with- cognition. So what we realize is that overdosing on these things is a problem too. So really we want people to just take that extra step and make sure that they they need it and if they need it take it but not be overdosing on it. Wow, so so I think I've been, you know, when covid started, I started taking a lot of all these things like vitamin D, zinc, magnesium, vitamin C. I wonder if I've been like doing too much. Like I'll take 10,000 IUs for instance of vitamin D. Is that do you think that's too much? It, so it's pot, it depends upon somebody's absorption, but I would say that get that blood test, <laughs> see where you are. And if you're at the levels too high in the range, then you know too much of any of these things that we, we know these these mega doses that you know were were popular quite a few years ago 
can be in the category of where it can be doing more harm than good. So we want to be in the normal ranges. So, you know, I, I keep coming back to it, but I'm just so impressed you went to the dentist. <laughs> you actually, you know, yeah, you made I'll, that step. I'll get my it, just, blood done. Yeah, just get, get that that get that once or twice a year physical blood work. And if anything is too low, address it with food. If not, if that's not working, supplements. If something's too high, then think about cutting some things back for sure. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, is it a myth that solving puzzles or math problems or doing memory quizzes or Sudoku, is it a myth or chess even, is it a myth that this helps the brain at all or, or even as maintenance? 
Uh, so learning new things is one of the best things you can do for your brain. We see this consistently in, in uh, many, many studies. So the message is, is that we don't want people to think that as long as I do a crossword puzzle, I'm good <laughs> and I ignore everything else. In most cases, what we see, it's, it's multiple factors. So it's a piece of the puzzle. It's one thing that's important to do. And so crossword puzzles, uh, Sudoku, chess, anything that's mentally stimulating is really, really good for the brain and should be prioritized. It's just not the only thing that we should be doing. And the way I like to think about it is cross-training your brain. So if you go to the gym, you're not going to just you know do bicep curls all day. Just like you shouldn't just do one a mentally stimulating activity. Think about three areas that you want to work out your brain. One is the mentally stimulating, you know, learning new things, playing chess, doing a crossword puzzle, taking a course in person or online. That's all excellent and, and should be prioritized, really important. New language, all that's great. But also think about doing something physical, like learning to learning a new sport, yoga, dance. Balance is so important for our brain health. And as we get older, we can deprioritize like training our brain for balance, challenging it. Um, and that's really important. It's a part of learning, but it's a physical learning. And the third thing is take some time during the week to be social, <laughs> like go out with a friend, get coffee, talk to people, because that's a part of learning that's a little bit different than the crossword puzzle and the physical. So just thinking about your week and being like, I just want to make sure I'm doing some things during the week that where I'm doing something mentally stimulating that's new and different, something I don't do all the time. I also want to do something that's physical, that's new and different, that I'm learning a new physical skill. And then I want to make sure I'm socializing, you know, uh, once or twice during the week at least, because that's where we see it's that kind of cross-training and all these different uh, aspects work out different parts of the brain. And that's what we want to be doing. We don't want to just be working out one part of the brain or two parts of the brain. We want to be working out, kind of getting a full body, full brain workout. So so all this is great. And I, I, I do want to, I think there's some areas where I need to improve my brain health. I feel like I've been kind of naturally going in that direction over the years, but I could probably do a lot more. Uh, one thing I, I want to get into some specifics. You mentioned how uh, mm -hmm. myelin are, you know, are these sheaths that form around uh, connections between neurons as people learn things. It's sort of like um, insulates the learning. And that, and I know this is yeah. definitely a huge way kids, you know, protect and learn things in a very deep way. And that as you get old, it used to be that they thought only kids could do this, but it turns out that later in life, you also could build this myelin and, and have this myelination yeah. around uh, the connections between neurons. How, how old before that stops happening? Um, we see that people can, it can slow down, but we see that people can have this process throughout their lifespan. I mean, there is not a, there's not an end point. There's not a point where we would say, um, you know, despite somebody having some significant underlying condition, that we can make the brain work better. Essentially, at any age, we can improve upon. Um, it doesn't mean things aren't going to slow down in some areas, but by challenging our balance, uh, by, you know, dancing, <laughs> uh, moving, playing sports, learning new things, we see myelination throughout the lifespan. So that's this idea that, you know, your brain stops changing after a certain age is a myth that we definitely want to dispel. It, but will will the myelination develop as quickly as it did back then when you were a kid, or or are there ways to to boost that? Is there some injection of myelin you could have so you have more myelin to to put in your brain? 
so as a in, in the developing brain time, which is you know from the time you're born to about 25, might be a little bit later for some individuals. But the idea is, is that's a very you know lots going on there, a lot of robust changes. The brain is under like it's almost like you're remodeling a home, and it, it's just determining what your personality is going to be like. Things that are just happening very quickly. Um, it's not the same for the rest of our life, but there are things that we can do to uh, keep the myelination process strong. When we sleep, that's important to, to preserve that process. A lot of that happens during sleep. Um, so if we're not sleeping well, that, that process can be diminished. The other thing is things that we eat. So we see that the omega-3s are what the myelin is essentially made of. So as you said, we basically think of your brain cells like a wire and you wrap the wire in a coating to keep the, the electrical signal propagating. Otherwise, it would just kind of fizzle and wouldn't get to the next brain cell. And so the omega-3s are like the salmon, um, you know, avocados, the healthy fats. We actually can't make myelin on our own. We get it through the things that we eat. And that's why when people say salmon is brain food, that's really what they mean, is that the omega-3 that comes in the salmon, uh, that, that is integral to the salmon, you digest it, send it up to your brain, wrap your brain cells with it. And if we're not taking it in, that can be uh, cause deficiencies in that process. So I, I eat a lot of salmon. Like that's probably the food I eat the most. I mean, su- in a sushi form, but uh, uh, I order yeah. from Grubhub or Uber Eats a lot. And uh, I try to sleep eight hours a day. I usually succeed at it. I try to move around, get sunlight and so on. And, get, and I, I try to get out and you know, stare into the horizon during the first 15 minutes after I wake up. Uh, so I try to do all these things, but I've definitely experienced some decline that I've noticed, you know, cause I can measure it. I can measure what I was like when I was in my twenties and I can measure what I'm like now, particularly on the chessboard. I could see the difference. So I'm, I definitely don't calculate as fast for instance. And my, my, my memory is definitely not as good. Uh, so I'm wondering, I'm wondering, A, what's going on, and B, you know, is there more I can do to improve it? So the things that you're doing are great. Um, think about, you know, the under, any, being aware of the underlying issues that are talked about in the book, heart health, gut health, um, you know, metabolism. Any of those issues can have us diabetes, insulin resistance. These things are often overlooked, but they have a really powerful impact on the functioning of our brain. So in the book, I give that one piece of paper of the test to have in normal ranges, um, because we see if people keep those numbers in ranges, they really can optimize their brain health. Part of this is also, I'm a big baseball fan. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but I, um, but you know, pitchers, early in their career, they often rely on velocity, the speed at which they're throwing the ball. And as they get older, we see that they can be highly successful, you know, into their 40s now, but they're not throwing velocity. They're, they're, they're using wisdom. They're using the skill of pitching, the craft, um, spinning the ball, placement. And it's very similar that we have to be aware that as we get older, there are some skills like, you know, pure velocity, pure speed that might diminish. We'll do everything we can to preserve that, you know, just like a pitcher is going to try to stay in the best shape possible, um, stretch, do all those things that are that to, to leverage. But as you mentioned with chess, and, and I know you know a lot more about chess than I do, <laughs> much more, but the idea is, is that, you know, we want to be thinking about, well, what are the things that I can leverage that I can grow in skills and, and that I can use to my advantage that I didn't have earlier and try to balance that so I can be, you know, executing at the highest level possible for as long as possible. Um, being aware that there is a point, you know, where 
velocity drops. You know, calculation speed does drop. We do everything we can to keep it going, but try to leverage the things that we're learning in terms of experience, um, execution, and think about this in all facets of life. So we do see certain skills do increase as we get older. Um, our ability to make decisions, things like that can increase. So it might not be the speed of the decision, but the quality of the decision um, can be um, sometimes optimized. I wonder how you can practice quality decision-making. Like others, you know, like other things you can practice. Like, oh, I could move around and play tennis or yoga or whatever. Or I could sleep yeah. eight hours. I could eat these foods. How do you practice? And I could even practice calculating math problems or solving, you know, doing memory right. quizzes. But how do you practice decision-making? Yeah, that's a, there's actually some really interesting research there and some some interesting take-home tips on that are, um, one is, you know, when you're making the decision, our, our decision-making abilities are, are likely different at different times of the day. Um, there's been all these really interesting studies with like judges, for example, that they make better decisions after they eat, <laughs> if they're not hungry. Um, we're quick to make a worse decision if they're not sleep-deprived. So just if you have to make a good decision or if to make a decision that you want to be good, taking an assessment and saying, am I tired? Am I hungry? Because if those things are are on the table, you might want to rectify those things first. Um, another thing to be aware of is, and I think what's really what chess really teaches this is looking at things from multiple angles and multiple decisions. Like what, okay, I'm going to be making this decision, but how do I look at this from somebody else's perspective? Like what is the other perspective on this? Another interesting insight that research has shown us about decision making is sometimes the time that we spend taking to make a decision will not impact the quality of the decision. They did these interesting studies with like generals who make decisions and they found that if they spent a longer time making the decision, it didn't necessarily make them make a better decision. But what was really helpful was how they reacted to the outcome of that decision that they had just made. And so that realizing like you're not going to be perfect in all your decision making, there will be flaws, there's errors within you know our decision making process. We can't know all the variables, but make that, you know, do your best to make a good decision, be well-fed, get good sleep, try to look at it from multiple angles, try to not just look at it from your perspective, then make the decision and then say, okay, I've made the decision. How am I now going to make the next best decision based upon how that decision um, worked out? So you know, there's a whole area of, of interesting research there, but some, some things to think about and talk about. You know, it's interesting about the, the food thing. Like I always wondered if you just ate wouldn't your blood be kind of working on your, and, and all your brain energy, but working on digesting your food instead of helping you make decisions? So they actually, the quality of what you're eating actually makes a difference. So they did this really interesting study where they had people eat essentially the same meal and they had them take uh, a test. It was about an hour later. So it is possible like right after eating, <laughs> you know, you might want to be careful. But, you know, thinking about timing about an hour later, they essentially ate the same meal, but one was prepared with like, you know, more natural ingredients and one was prepared with like processed food ingredients. Um, and the people who ate the natural food version of the, of the meal performed better on the test an hour later. They brought everybody back a few months later. They switched the meal. And they found the same results again, even with the different group of people who had had the ultra-processed meal. So there's a really powerful connection between what's happening in our gut. You know, as we digest food, the food is broken apart and things are sent to the brain, um, not just nutrients, but certain foods that we eat cause inflammation that can be damaging to our brain function. So it, it's, it is interesting to think about that the quality of the food that we're eating can impact our, our, uh, our performance. Now, even more specifically, I'm wondering about other types of hacks or whatever that people use. Like for instance, you know, some I saw someone talking about something called alpha GPC the other day, like one of these nootropics that yeah. 
supposedly these supplements that enhance brain power? Yeah, when we talk about those, it's the Wild West. You know, it's there, there's no real strong research. Interestingly, the one that we have the most research with is caffeine. That, 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 that's the one that actually has a, some evidence that it might improve memory. So like a cup of coffee or tea, you know, right before you're about to do something, a memory task might be improving, improving for memory. But the other ones were still at the level of a lot of marketing, a lot of anecdotal evidence, a lot of, you know, maybe small animal studies, but where we really see, we don't really see evidence that, you know, there's a magic pill, that there's something that people can take that can, you know, improve their mental performance beyond if they are, have some underlying condition and that medication is going to be treating that condition and then improving their performance. But just for the general population, you know, it's a big field, but it's very unregulated, very wild west. And people need to be careful because, you know, the last thing we want to do is hurting our brain because we hear that, you know, the enticement of if I just take this thing, it's going to be improving my performance. That's the interesting thing about caffeine. Like I always thought caffeine was just suppressing the feelings of being tired, even if you are tired, so that it doesn't really help you. It just pretends to help you. So in, in general, I don't drink a lot of caffeine, but you're su you're suggesting maybe a small amount might be okay for, for I, I didn't know the connection between caffeine and memory. Yeah, there, there are some interesting studies there. It's not at the point where we would say that, you know, people need to start drinking <laughs> coffee or tea, but there is some evidence that if you drink coffee or tea, um, that there might be some benefits for anti-inflammatory. So we're thinking about caffeine in terms of, you know, coffee or tea as opposed to like a soda. So for example, in coffee or tea, um, there's some anti-inflammatory, there's these like polyphenols that, that we believe are good for the brain. But the caffeine itself, there is some evidence that can be in, uh, helpful in memory, uh, in, in concentration and focus, as long as it's not too much. You know, too much caffeine, people get jittery, <laughs> they have trouble calming down. And the only other issue is that caffeine can have a long half-life. So if anyone's having any trouble sleeping, be careful of having caffeine past like noon or one. There's some people who can like down a cappuccino <laughs> five minutes before bed and sleep just fine. They actually have different brain chemistry. Uh, they just metabolize caffeine differently. Um, but there is some evidence that it's it's worth, you know, next time you want to do a mental task, take a little bit of caffeine and see how it improves your ability to to, to perform. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, there was a book by uh, Sanjeev Chopra, who's a doctor out of, uh, he works at, Harvard is Deepak Chopra's brother, and he wrote a book about the five most nutritious foods. And I think, if I remember correctly, caffeine might have been number one for him because of all the. He said there's a lot of antioxidants in co yeah. a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. So if you're if you're enjoying your 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 coffee or tea in the morning, there, there's some evidence there that it, it could be beneficial. And um, okay, now getting really specific into hacks in the book, you mentioned how there were these two mice. One was very adventurous, the other was not so adventurous and very shy, and they switched yeah. kind of gut bacteria because uh, there's a lot <laughs> yes. of uh, brain cells in the gut. There's a lot of communication between the gut and the brain. And, and the shy my, mouse became more adventurous and the adventurous mouse became more shy. So why I, I understand yeah. that there's been a lot of these types of tests on mice, and, and I know the reasons why. Why haven't they tried such an easy thing on humans? This seems like an easy test to do on humans. <laughs> well, it, it's the way that they do those tests for, with the mice in terms of switching bacteria. The mice have to be raised in a certain environment. It's called germ-free, and it's just not 
feasible with humans to, to, to have them born into that environment and then raise them that way. But what we do see is evidence that individuals who have certain conditions that you wouldn't think are related to the gut, anxiety, depression, Parkinson's, we're seeing with Alzheimer's as well, that there's a component of gut health there. Um, and so, you know, there, again, we, people quickly jump to the, the marketing that, oh, everybody should be taking probiotics and that, that must, we should just be taking supplements to change our gut bacteria. Well, we see that for the vast majority of the population, that doesn't seem to do much of a benefit. But what you eat, and when we might go back to that study about the food that is processed versus not processed, that fundamentally changes the, the gut bacteria. But what if I just take the gut bacteria of a 20-year-old and, <laughs> and put it in my gut? Like, and well, transplant it? Yeah. I admit yeah, there's well, problems. The, like, the, I don't, the, it's not germ-free and all that, but it's better than, maybe yeah, yeah. It's better than nothing. So this idea of, of bacterial transplants is, it's out there. And it's on the, I mean, what I mean by out there is it's, it's being done. It's on the horizon. And here's the problem is that I'll tell you the pros and the cons. The hope of this is that it will be figured out in a way that it will make a difference. Right now, what happens is, is that you already have so much bacteria, you know, trillions of bacteria cells in your gut. And so what happens is, is that when you try to introduce just a new type of bacteria in the gut, it's like a squirt gun in the ocean. It's hard to make a difference in terms of the transplant unless somebody has, you know, some significant underlying condition where there's something we completely out of balance and we can try to push things in the other direction. So the changes that we see that are more beneficial now are with food because the bacteria eat food and if they, certain types of bacteria, they, you feed them and these certain types of bacteria grow if they're fed and if other bacteria are starved, they die. So it's not an overnight process, but it takes time. Um, but this idea of transplantation of bacteria, um, it's something to keep our eye on because it's part of the process. And if something like this, you know, down the road can be optimized, even for certain people with certain conditions, it's, it's, there's some hope there. It's just not, we're not just there yet. We're not, we're not, we're not ready uh, to do things like this, you know, commercially. There are people that, you know, you can find things online, um, but be very careful of those things. Like, has, have there been any studies with humans at all? Or have there been any like odd anecdotal successes? Yeah. There, so there is, um, you know, not to get, these, these studies get a little gross <laughs> uh, because of what we're talking about, but there's a condition called C. diff, um, which is individuals often catch this in the hospital and it's a very dangerous form of bacteria that grows in, in, the, in the intestine, in the, in the large intestine. And it's very hard to treat. They try to treat it with antibiotics and it, it just comes back and it, it's very, very challenging. So what they've done in some studies is they do a fecal transplant and they basically take, because feces is filled with bacteria, so they take from a healthy person and they transplant it in uh, to, to the person who's suffering from C. diff. And by doing that transplant, they've actually seen some benefit where people do better than being treated with antibiotics. So it's, that's, his, that's where we see the most evidence in what we would call like a bacteria transplant. But that's in a case where somebody is you know, suffering from something like C. diff. There are biotech companies that have popped up and said, well, let's, instead of doing it as a fecal transplant, let's see if we can put this in a pill. And those have not been as successful. So there is something synergistically happening amongst all these different types of bacteria that we don't quite understand yet and how to get the right combination to people. Um, and so instead that where we see that's one example of success um, in a very specific situation. 
Now, in the book, you mentioned different types of memory, like there's kind of focus memory where something's happening right in front of you, there's short-term memory, there's long-term memory, and kind of in the middle of, I guess, short-term memory, there's working memory. Uh, yeah. and, and I'm wondering if one problem as you get older is that your working memory, your ability to kind of, um, like, like for instance, I, I used to be a, a computer programmer, and when you're a computer programmer, yeah. you have to kind of keep track of all the code in your head simultaneously. So if something goes wrong, you can get you can make an accurate guess. Oh, it's from this part of the code because it's interacting in this way, you know, and so on. So, so working memory is very critical for for these types yeah. of calculations. I'm wondering if there's a way to, you know. Again, outside of the lifestyle changes, I wonder if there's a way to make working memory a little bigger, or maybe that shrinks as you get older. Yeah, so working memory, uh, the way you described it is, is correct. And one way to think about it is like scratch pad memory. Like it's the things you would write down on a scratch pad as you're like trying to take notes about something you're doing, but you're holding it in your head. And as we get older, this is the part of a part of memory that can diminish. It can be much more challenging to, to kind of keep hold information but by practicing that, so as we get older, and especially in our modern world where we're, we have to do this less and less, you know, so much of the information that we, that, that we want to remember is at our fingertips in terms of Googling it, it's in our phone. So actually just practicing this type of memory has been shown to be effective. So like just saying to yourself, you know, I'm going to set aside some time during the day and I'm going to practice trying to keep track of a calculation in my head. I'm going to do some 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 math. I'm going to remember, uh, try to memorize some phone numbers. I mean, it's so hard now to memorize a phone number. It's because this part of our brain has atrophied in our modern world right. um, because we don't have to do it. So, you know, these skills are, an, al an element of this is that they're use it or lose it. And if we don't practice these skills, they do diminish. It can get harder as we get older. But oftentimes as we get older, we're not doing these things as much as we were when we were younger. I mean, I guess in a lot of my activities in life, I have to have a big working memory. Like even this podcast, I had to yeah. not only read your book, but understand what questions I wanted to ask, yeah. remember them. So I'm not referring to notes or whatever. And, and similarly, like in, in chess, when you're making a decision, you're calculating all these lines. You have to remember before you make the decision, what lines you calculated, what was good and what was bad. I'm wondering if, right. so, so, so in other words, I practice this a lot, but I wonder if it's just maintenance because I'm no longer able to improve it because of, because of my age, whereas kids are able to improve it when they practice it. Um, let me give you a compliment. It's amazing. What I, like, I've done a, quite a few interviews, and the fact that you read the book, not, you're not using notes, and you are uh, you know, discussing it, it's amazing. Like, what, what you're doing is amazing. So, Thank you. you know, yeah, like thinking of all the things that you might be concerned about, like what you're doing is incredible. So it's it's not easy to do that. Um, so you know, thinking about if you're seeing areas where you're like, I want to improve upon that. You know, trying to get kind of granular in what that is, and and saying like, it's kind of like if you know if you're exercising and you're going to the gym, and you know you can generally improve things, but if you get down to like, what is the exact thing that I want to be working on that I want to be improving? And sort of saying like, okay, what what is that skill? Is it is it that the the idea of specifically uh, tracking information in my brain? Am I losing information somewhere along the way? Um, 
Is that the concern or is it just in general the speed of the information that I'm able to calculate? Am I losing my train of thought along the way? And trying to figure out which of those things are someone is having difficulty and then trying to assess, you know, specific exercises that can be done for those things. But also there's that layer and then there's the layer of the sleep, the underlying issues, the diet, all those things come into play because the health of the brain causes those those areas to be at their at their best. And as we get older, those things can slip in areas here and there. So it's kind of the balance of those two aspects. But I wonder if the age-related aspect decreases, like let's say the working memory or the calculation speed so much that the best you could hope for with all of these things is maintenance, which is good, which is fine. Like that's, you know, wards off dementia and Alzheimer's and so on potentially. But I wonder if there's a way to keep improving even as you age, but maybe it's just not. Well, I, I, I can, there's these tests that they did in Finland um, and they, they did these interventions that, that we're talking about, these lifestyle interventions, and people improved. They didn't just maintain. Mm-hmm. They saw improvements in, they gave them tests. Big group of people, they looked at thousands of people. Half the people did the intervention, half the people didn't. The people who did their intervention, their test scores went up significantly. Their you know, executive functioning went up significantly and the processing speed of their brain went up significantly. So we do see, it's not just about maintenance. Um, it's about, we do see evidence that things can be improved upon um, throughout the lifespan. And then, and then there's another factor with, which is sort of related to age, but not biologically, more environmentally. Like, you know, as opposed to when I was younger, now I have kids, you know, career yeah. issues, you know, I deal with lots of different people more than when I was a kid or younger. And I wonder, I wonder if that has a role as well. But then again, when I was younger, I also was less equipped to handle, you know, multiple things going on in my life. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely, there's pros and cons to both. So on one hand, as we get older, we we gain the ability to manage our emotions better, but we have more oftentimes responsibilities, you know, not in all cases, but in many cases. And so that is, there's a lot of multitasking going along, uh, going around. And so something I do talk about in the book that can be helpful to what we've been discussing here is that the 10 seconds, (laughs) if you had a chance to see that part, that it sounds so- The seven second rule, right? Yeah, seven to 10 seconds. And so this idea that, um, you know, sometimes I say, give it an extra three seconds, (laughs) make it 10 seconds. And so the idea is, is that, you know, we are multitasking a lot and we're also moving on to things very quickly. And so the part of your brain that's sort of holding information in the waiting room, it's called the hippocampus, it doesn't really want to remember things. Like there's all this filtering that goes on in the brain and the hippocampus coordinates a lot of our memory functions. So working memory, short-term memory, recall, it's like Grand Central Station and kind of the waiting room of memory. And so if you want to remember something, it's so remarkably simple, but if we just think about our modern world where we're often not spending two seconds figuring out where we, or remembering where we parked our car, put our keys, we're just on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. It's just, when you want to remember something, saying to yourself, I'm just going to focus on this and nothing but this for an uninterrupted seven to 10 seconds, because that allows that part of the brain to say, oh, this information is important. It transfers it to other parts of the brain where it's going to be remembered, as opposed to just throwing it away. Because the brain is constantly trying to filter things out. And in our 
constant multitasking states or a constant state of distraction or overwhelm or you know tiredness or just moving on to things that we need to move on to quickly, our brain is often thinking, oh, this stuff is not probably that important for a long term. Let's just throw it away, throw it away, throw it away, throw it away. Um, and so that simple tip can be you know very effective, especially as we get older. What do you think is the um, effect of social media on memory and, and calculation? Because you know when you when you let's say you spend an hour or two scrolling through your Facebook feed or Twitter feed or whatever, yeah. you're taking in all this information that is is the brain has to go go into overdrive filtering things because it's almost all useless. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it, social media has it's not all good and it's not all bad. Um, on on one level, the things that we're concerned about with social media are that it's highly, highly difficult to put it down. And you know, brain scientists have been hired to make this content tap into parts of our brain that make it so that we just can't put it away. I mean, even you know, when we're streaming things on on TV nowadays, the next episode starts before the last episode ends. It's all about keeping you engaged, keeping you in this loop of of constantly clicking the next thing or or onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. That can keep us from sleeping. That can keep us from going outside. It can keep us from connecting with people in, in a much more probably meaningful way. And those are the concerns. Uh, it also can keep us from doing other activities that are good for our brain. But there's elements of social media that can be positive. It can connect us. We can learn new things. It can be relaxing in some cases. So the idea is, is that it's a balance. You know, social media can be good, but we want to keep it to doses and be highly aware that it's hard to keep it to doses. So sometimes we have to take, you know, strong action to say, I'm going to turn this off, <laughs> put it in a drawer and set a boundary on this because I know that if I don't, I'm going to be constantly uh, checking it. And I talk in the book about these studies where even if your phone is off and in front of you, people score less on tests than if it's in another room because your brain is seeing the phone and thinking, what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? And these things like micro distraction or, or your brain thinking about uh, things that are that are just in your visual field that you would think, oh, I'm not thinking about that. It is disrupting your ability to you know, think at, optim at optimal levels. And, and I'm wondering... Is there, let's say you're making a decision and you're thinking very hard about it, you're concentrating, uh, and then you, is there any benefit to looking away? Like you said, you could, when you look at things from multiple angles, sometimes that's helpful, but is there any benefit, for instance, to getting up and looking away as opposed to constantly churning on one problem? Yeah, absolutely. So your brain works on things in the background. There's, there's your conscious level of thought, and then there is your ability of your brain to sort of work on things in the background. And so there's this, there's these interesting studies, and I touch upon them in the book about kind of this, this formula that people use who tend to really rise to the top of their field. And what they tend to do is they tend to focus without distraction, they put the phone away, and they lock into what they need to be doing for you know a certain time during the day. It could be 20 minutes, could be 30 minutes, could be 40 minutes. But at the end of that time period, they take a break. They go for a walk. They go for a swim. They, you know, they do something else because that ability to move on to something more mindless or more fun allows the brain to play with the information and look at it from multiple perspectives and multiple angles. So that's why dreams are so great is because it's one of the only time during our, our day where our brain takes a break of thinking about things in a very structured, uh, you know, structured manner. 
So this idea of this dual benefit or this, this ability of the brain to say, okay, I'm really going to focus on this, but then I'm going to take a break. A lot of our best ideas or, or breakthroughs or, or creative thought don't happen in the moment of the intense focus. They often come on the walk or you know, a, a little bit later while you're taking a swim or, or working out or, or doing something else, you just wake up. And that's because it's kind of like in the moment that you're focusing on it, you plant the seed, but you allow it to bloom later when you're just kind of letting your brain work on it in the background. It sounds so simple, but we oftentimes get stuck in this pattern of thinking where we're, you know, you're, you're doing work, but you're checking a sports score, or you're checking a vacation website, or you're taking your break, but you're still answering a work email. And just separating out the boundaries and saying, nothing but focus, nothing but break. Back to nothing but focus, back to nothing but break, um, seems to be not only lessening burnout, but it also gets us off you know, the hamster wheel and allows us to use our brain in ways where we're just kind of getting the best of its ability as opposed to just sort of balancing things, multitasking all day long. Nothing wrong with multitasking. Just we want to make sure some part of the day is more structured in these two ways of thinking. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned how musicians often have these insights of creativity uh, in the shower. The shower seems to be like the classic place because I guess that's like <laughs> yeah. a forced break and there's yeah. no, it's not like you're on your phone in the shower. It's there's right, nothing there. Right. It's all all interesting stuff. I mean, I, I it's 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 definitely an area of research where it's like critically important, not only for people who are at risk of dementia or Alzheimer's, but just as we get older and want to maintain relevance in the things we love doing, this is all important stuff yeah. and, and we need to pay attention to it. So Dr. Mark Milstein, author of The Age Proof Brain, and also uh, your website, your personalbraincoach.com. I highly recommend people check that site out as well. Thank you so much for giving me so much useful information, which I'm definitely gonna I'm gonna have salmon every night this week before my tournament this weekend. <laughs> so thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It was really just so great to be here. Thank you. If you like that episode, please, please subscribe to me wherever you get podcasts because it helps my podcast stay alive and well, and I want you to subscribe. Please do it. Thank you so much. 